What, what we'll do today is kind of finish what is really the first little section of First and Second Peter in the, the six months that we'll be going through the books. And I want to kind of talk about what this first 12 verses does for us. As we go through the books of First and Second Peter, there's this strong kind of teaching on suffering and hardship and trials. And the need for Christians and the church to stand firm in the midst of them. And so what Peter does in these first kind of 12 verses, he begins to lay the foundation of what will enable us to stand firm in the midst of trial. So he's kind of setting the table of everything that's going to come after that. And he begins early on in verses 1 and 2 describing our identity and our mission. That we are elect exiles, that we have been chosen by God and drawn to Him for salvation as He's lavished His love upon us. And that we're, so we're elect and we're drawn to Him, but we're exiles. We've been sent out by Him into a world to accomplish His mission. And from there, He begins to elaborate on this beautiful hope that we have in Jesus of this this inheritance that's undefiled, unfading, and kept for us in heaven is we're guarded by faith. And it's all the power of God that strengthens us and enables us to remain in that state. And so he says, this is what your hope is. Because on days when suffering hits, the hope is necessary. And hope is what, what pulls you through it is when you, you know not some generic kind of impulse that eventually things will get better, but a concrete understanding of what God has promised to be coming for us who have trusted in Christ. And so he begins to lay out our hope of salvation through Jesus. And then in the, the following verses that Carl talked about last week, as any good pastor would, Peter kind of says, but guys, you're going to need this hope because you will have afflictions. You will suffer. This is the reality of life. And so he begins to kind of brace them for what's coming and give them the tools needed to stand up amidst the pressure. And so today where we find ourselves is in, in the end of this close where he's telling us to be firmly grounded in the words of God as we endure hardship and trials. And guys, this is an important message, and we can't, we can't really beat this drum enough, is to say that life is hard. And it's easy to sell a religion that tells you life is wonderful. And if it's not wonderful, you're just not smiling enough. Smile harder and things will get better. And, and see, here's what happens with the power of positive thinking when you repackage it with the Bible. Is one is you dilute the Bible to where it doesn't say what it says anymore. And two, you set people up for a lifetime of disillusion. Because they're told things like, if you had enough faith, you would have been healed. And then they don't get their miracle. Never mind that God never promised that miracle. And so if we kind of walk around with this, if you have enough faith, everything turns up daisies all the time. We're, we're setting ourselves and those that we love up for disillusion with God, up for depression, and really the inability to stand firm in the midst of the sufferings that are to be expected. And so today, the Apostle Peter is going to describe to us the ministry of the Word of God and how it impacts us as we go through hardship. So I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Concerning this salvation, 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So we begin with this. Peter lays out very briefly the ministry of the prophets. Prophets were men who spoke from God to the people. And they had two functions. One was, was forthtelling, when they would kind of lay out God's proclamation, what God had said about an issue. And the other was foretelling, when they would look towards the future as God was communicating His promises to His people. And so every year, close to this time, right, we're going to pull out the old promises of the Old Testament prophets. And we're going to read Isaiah, that, that there was a, a child to be born unto us. And you will call him Emmanuel, right? We're going to read those promises where the prophets look down the corridor of time and God enabled them to see what would happen and they proclaim this hope, this promise to God's people. And so the ministry of the prophets, if you notice this in, in verse 10, he says, look, the prophets prophesied concerning what? Concerning the salvation that was to be revealed, that's been communicated to us. And if you look through the Old Testament Scriptures and the ministry of the Old Testament prophets, what you'll find, if you view it across the board, is they're continually proclaiming God's promise to send a Redeemer. There's over 300 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus coming. Some would say 400, and I don't know whose math is better. There's a lot. The promise gets repeated over and over again. It begins in Genesis 3. When man and woman have sinned and fallen, and God pronounces judgment upon them, but in the midst of their judgment, He proclaims to Satan that there will be a man born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The first glimpse of the good news. Later on in Genesis, when when the patriarchs are dying, He prophesies over Judah and says, from your line will come a king who will rule until the one to whom all dominion is due. The promise becomes clear. In Exodus, the promise becomes clear as Balaam proclaims a star rising out of Israel, crushing the heads of the enemies of God. It becomes clearer and clearer as the story rolls on. The King David is given this promise that one of his descendants will reign on the throne forever. The prophet Isaiah proclaims a virgin will give birth. The prophet Malachi tells us of this coming king. The prophet Micah tells us his birth in Bethlehem. Over and over again, the promise is laid out. Because there's not just all these stories in the Bible, there's a story to the Bible. I mean, yes, there's a sense in which the, the words of the prophets are all somewhat timely. They're speaking to a particular people at a particular moment in history. And much of the prophets, if you read it, is somewhat of a downer because God's consistently saying, you've sinned, you've rejected the covenant, and there's judgment and discipline coming. Turn and repent. But kind of wedged in all of that is this continual looking forward to the promise of one who would save. Of a coming king who would redeem the people of God and extend hope to all the nations. 
over and over and over again. That's the story of the Bible. That's the ministry of the prophets was to set up for us the salvation that was to be revealed. That's ultimately the heartbeat of the Bible. Beginning with Moses, the writers of sacred scripture received the words of God and faithfully transmitted them to God's people, proclaiming His promise of redemption. For over 1,500 years, in three languages across three continents with 40 authors, a central message that men and women stand under God's judgment because of their sin, but God, who is rich in mercy, has not allowed them to stay there, but has sent His only Son to die for them, to suffer on their behalf as the prophets declared, to rise from the dead as the prophets proclaimed, and to reign victoriously forever as the prophets had seen. That's the message of the prophets. And so Peter says, look, These men spoke from God concerning the salvation that was to come. Martin Luther looked upon these truths and said that ultimately no passage of Scripture is rightly understood until it glorifies Jesus. Because the whole Bible is telling the story of His coming and what He would accomplish. That's the heartbeat of the Scripture. Furthermore, the Scriptures tell us here how they originate, where they come to to be. In verse 11, it tells us that these men were inquiring as to what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. So I want you to understand what's going on here. The prophets got these pictures, these images, these concepts of this coming Redeemer, this one who would suffer for our sin, who would then rise again victoriously and reign over all creation. But they didn't get all the details. They got a bit of information here and a a bit there and a little bit here. and, And the picture for each of them was a bit murky. And so the Spirit of God at work in them was, was also drawing them with great desire to understand who this would be, when this would come. Because when you read the prophet Isaiah, the, the proclamation is this, is that a people wandering in darkness have seen a great light. And so in the midst of the darkness of their day, the hardship that they endured, the prophets cry out to God and desire to know when will He come, who will He be. But we understand a few things from this text about how the Scriptures come us. First, we understand that it's the work of the Spirit of Christ within the prophet. These things didn't originate with a man sitting down with, with a scroll and parchment and ink. These things originated as the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, also called the Spirit of Christ in this passage, was at work within these men. And then we find out in verse 12 that this was revealed to them. This was shown to them. And it's important to understand the distinction between discovery and revelation. These are not truths that these men discovered by reading tea leaves or palm readings or or funny cards. They didn't call a 900 number and talk to a lady with a cool Jamaican accent. This was revealed to them by God. God showed it to them. 
The Greek word is apocalypto, which is also in the indicative mood, which is cut through the chase with the Greek grammar. What that means is this is proclaiming this actually occurred. This is not a potentially maybe they were shown something, but firmly stating God revealed this to them. Now, what this tells us a few things about the origin of Scripture that does not begin with men. In 2 Peter chapter 2, the Scriptures say this very clearly for us. If you want to flip over there into verse 21. Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 21. I typoed that. My apologies. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in in this text, we get a, a clearer picture about how prophecy and how Scripture comes to be. It says, look, no prophets, none of them, originated the message in themselves. But rather, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit carried them through the process. The power, the, the, the revelation, all of this is coming through the Spirit of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Scriptures tell us that, that all of Scripture is God-breathed. Some translations say inspired. The Greek word literally means breathed out from God. But that's how the Scriptures came to be. Verse 11 in chapter 1 of 1 Peter says that it was revealed. So when we look to the Scriptures, we're not looking to man's solutions for our problems. This is not like reading the latest book from Deepak Deepak Chopra. Or whoever it is that Oprah pushes this week. This is reading something that's been revealed from God. Because of that, sometimes the Scriptures seem counterintuitive to us. Sometimes they, it doesn't seem to make sense. And the Bible says things like, humble yourself and you'll be exalted. And that, that doesn't make sense to us. If you want to be exalted, uh, the world would say, exalt yourself. The Scriptures flip everything at times. Because this isn't man's wisdom. This isn't man's solution. And in our foolishness and in our sin, the wisdom of God seems strange to us. Which is ultimately why God has to reveal His will to us. Because we can't stumble our way to it blindly in the dark. I mean, we would have never come up with this story on our own. I want you to think about the essence of the Gospel is that God has paid the penalty for our sin against Him. That He has poured out His wrath upon His Son. Now, everything within us wants there to be something that is free for us. Something that we receive with no strings attached. But everything within us also believes that's not possible. There's no such thing as a free meal. There's no such thing as a gift without a string attached. I don't care what anyone tells you. Except when it comes to God. 
And all of a sudden, this kind of normal wisdom that we operate with is flipped on its head when we find out that God has given this gift to us as He lavishes His love upon us because of nothing good within us, but rather because He is good. And so the whole story flips our kind of perspective on how things work, how relationships operate. And God has to show this to us. And ultimately, it's the distinction with Christianity and every other faith in the world where we pay penance, where we do good things to outweigh our bad things. That's a very man-centered perspective. That we earn our way, that we pay our way, and that God is no different. Except that the Scriptures proclaim we're incapable of paying anything to Him because we're bankrupt. The Scripture gives such a low view of man That there's no way it originated from human beings. How many of us sit down to write our own autobiography and begin with these words, I am an utter idiot. And I would like to retain for posterity for all the generations this one fact that I am an idiot. No, that's not normal human thinking. Normal human thinking is to spin things. Right? That's why resumes are not worth the paper they're written on. Because no matter what we did, we, we got the one thing we did well over the five years at the company, and that's what we highlight. Because normal human behavior is to spend everything as positive as possible. When you look at the Bible, it doesn't do that. The Bible's really honest. And it's also really honest about the men who wrote it. I mean, you think about this. When we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see a depiction of the leaders of the church that they present to the entire church for thousands of years that says, we're buffoons. And we have no idea, except the grace of God, how this thing worked at all. That's the image they give. That's the story they give those that follow them. We had no idea what was going on, and we were always wrong. And Jesus was very patient has the ring of truth to it. It's not human wisdom. So, the prophets receive these words from God, faithfully transmit them to us. And they do this, the Scripture tells us, to serve us. You notice that? He says, look, the Spirit of Christ revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but they were serving you. They received this murky picture and they transmitted what they had. And then over time, all of that together began to clarify things. And then the coming of Christ, we see all of these prophecies so clearly fulfilled in Him. And the good news was proclaimed to us. It's important to note the life of a prophet was not good or easy. When Stephen preaches before the Sanhedrin, before the religious leaders of the day, he, he says, which one of the prophets did you not persecute and kill? Like, being a prophet sounds glamorous, but it's really a horrible job. Chances of you being stoned, rejected, mocked, ridiculed, arrested, are very high. Because the prophet often proclaimed hard truths to people not willing to receive them. Compare that to those who claim to be prophets today. I don't know if you've interacted with this kind of segment of the population. My experience with those who claim to be prophets or have a prophetic word for others is generally they always prophesy really positive things and they're always really well liked. 
compared to the ministry of the prophets in the Bible who say things like, woe to you, and are universally hated. Just a distinction that I would kind of point to you. If someone says they have a word of prophecy and it's always good, it's always positive, it's always how God has a plan to prosper you and give you material blessings, material joy, and physical health always. No matter what happens, they have a word of, of good things for you. The, the Bible has a word for those people, it's called soothsayers. They don't proclaim the truth, they tell people what they want to hear for financial gain. The prophets, however, are distinctly different. They served us by proclaiming truth to us. True prophets versus charlatans. And these great men, think about this who penned the very words of Scripture. King David, King Solomon, Moses. God has made them our servants. Do you understand that? That their lives, their devotion was, he says, to serve those of us who would hear the good news. That's quite humbling to think about. Is that God has made these great heroes of the faith Servants of men like me and you in this place. And that's their ministry to us. They didn't understand what they were proclaiming. There was also a bit of a mystery here. You'll notice that the prophets understood something was coming, but they didn't have it all put together. They didn't see the full picture. It's also a mystery in this is that Verse 12 tells us that these were truths that angels longed to look at. So we need to think about this great mystery of redemption that the prophets, men who spoke directly to God, who heard a word from Him where they could stand up before the people of Israel and say, thus says the Lord. Things that we haven't experienced. The angels who were ever in His presence, undefiled by sin, who worship Him, who, who have seen the very glory of God in His fullness... God has withheld from them this truth that He has revealed to us. So that when the angels filled the sky that first Christmas and proclaimed the message to the, to the shepherds that the Son of God had come, that this was new news to them too, and that they were left perplexed why the very King of Heaven would come as an infant to die for us. God had kept this mystery hidden, but revealed it to us. Another significant element of talking about this as a revelation, it's, this wasn't a new plan that God concocted. This was His plan before the foundations of the world that He had kept within Himself. So that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit knew, but they had not shared this plan in its fullness with all of creation. And the prophets longed to see it, and the angels longed to see it, and it's been given to us freely. And we can go to the bookstore, and we can buy it in pink, black, brown, all sorts of copies. You can get camo, you can get metal casing with a magnetic latch. You can get it in hundreds of languages. You can get it in thousands of translations with pictures in it. You can get it with the Q-Tag reader where you take a picture with your smartphone and Gene Getz shows up and preaches the passage to you. The angels long to look at this. 
And God has given it to us in abundance through every avenue possible. You can, some of you are reading it on your phone right now. On your iPad, on your computer, on your cell phone, in your CD player. All of it. It's been revealed to us. He's lavished His grace upon us with words that for thousands of years the very angels were perplexed by, who longed to understand, longed to see what God has shown to us. So how did we receive this message? How does this message go from one person to another? Well, first God spoke through the prophets. And then verse 12 says He announced it through men. Through everyday people. Men and women who weren't prophets. Who heard the message, received it as truth, and shared it with, with someone else. If you look at verse 12, the language is this. He said, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so this message is transmitted as, as men and women, as flawed as they may be, begin to share the message of God with other men and women. But the power doesn't reside in the sharer. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who makes this possible. You notice that they did it through people who announced the good news, but by, by what power? By the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Not only did God give this text to us in writing and post it in very public places for us to read and hear and understand, it's not like He just made an announcement. He then called people as ambassadors, as emissaries, as messengers, and said, go. And if that wasn't enough, He empowered those messengers with the very power of God, the very power, Romans 8 says, that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in believers as they share this good news. Because God wanted us all to hear it. That every nation under heaven would hear this word and would cling tight to it in the midst of suffering and hardship. That they would hold fast to these words of hope and salvation and redemption in Jesus and Jesus alone. That was God's desire. And He went all out. His marketing plan was complete. We map out things with, with the church about how we're going to communicate because you can't, we can't announce everything we do up here. Otherwise, we'd have an hour and a half of announcements. And we can't send you an email about everything we do, otherwise your inbox would be full. And so we try to map things out of, okay, what are we going to put a poster up for? What are we going to put up a flyer? What's going to be in the bulletin? Are we going to do a mailer? Is this going to be on Facebook? All these different forms that we could communicate. And the more important the thing is in the life of the church, the more airtime it gets. So look at how God has chosen to communicate His Word to us. He's not withheld anything. The very power of God is beyond, behind its transmission. This is significant and important. And God has pulled out all the stops so that we could hear and we could share this message. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Scriptures clarify for us a little bit about how we approach this message. says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Again, 
Not, not men seeking gain, but men willing to suffer, women willing to suffer for the message that they have. Because you, you go and you proclaim Jesus because you've been sent by God. Not because everyone wants to hear the message all the time, but because God has sent you. Romans chapter 10 tells us again how the message is transmitted. In verse 14, it says, How then will they call on Him who they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You see this is a multiple layered thing. It says that people must call out, must believe in the Lord Jesus, but how are they going to do that unless they've heard what He's done for them? Unless they've heard the words of God and this message of salvation. Well, someone's got to tell them, but who's going to tell them if they're not sent? Which is a huge, a huge truth in understanding how the church should operate is that each of us is ultimately missionaries in this world and that we've been sent and that the job, the role of the church, the leaders in the church, the ministries of the church is to equip and prepare you to go with the message. We want you to grow. We want you to be mature because that's the way the message is communicated is that people committed to loving and following Christ go to their world and invite them to join them in that commitment and faith in Christ. So the church is here to train, to send collectively as an organization and each of us to go out as missionaries with this good news. And and can I be honest, is that the people you know who do not believe in Christ have no hope outside of Jesus and God has said they will not likely hear unless you tell them. Someone has to tell them. That's how the message is transmitted. And so, here's what we come to. The Word of God has been delivered to the prophets and from them to us. With stunning consistency and clarity, all proclaiming this central message that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again, who will come again in glory and establish God's kingdom. That's the big idea behind the Bible. Every other small story leads up to that reality and proclaims its coming in the future. So that's the story that we have been given from the prophets and that God has given us then the Holy Spirit so we can do two things. One, so we can live in a manner consistent with that story. And two, that we can share that message and invite others to experience forgiveness in Jesus as well. And here's why this is so important, guys. Peter's going to lay out for us a simple truth here is that this endurance that we need through the hardships and trials is not possible unless we're grounded in the very words of God. I want you to understand the connection Peter has between the suffering that is a reality and the ministry of the prophets and encouraging us to stay connected with, to highly value what they have done for us. Because you cannot and will not be able to endure faithfully with Christ in the midst of hardship without being velcroed to the Word of God. You can't do it. And and this is why the Word reminds us of the salvation that we've received in Jesus. So the, the Scriptures force us to look backwards to remember His goodness to us. And that enables us to trust Him. 
When I was a little boy, I can remember as we would go to West Texas camping, and there's this place, Balmeray, that has like this three-acre spring-fed swimming pool. And at the deepest spot, it's about 35 feet. And there's a high dive. I don't know how tall it is. As a kid, it felt like it was about 100 feet above the water. And I can remember climbing up there as a little boy. I'm the youngest in the family. Big sister's gone off. Big brother's doing flips off the thing. And I'm scared to go. And so I did the thing that little kids do, which is climb up to the top, stand there with a line of people behind you, and then have the embarrassing climb down. About three times that day. And then eventually dad said, son, what are you afraid of? You do backwards flips off the board. You, you whacked your head. You do it again. And you're afraid of this. I said, it's just a long way down. And so, Dad, I remember this distinctly. Dad said, son, if I go down there and I'm in the water with you, will you jump? I said, yeah, I'll jump. And so Dad kind of gets out into the, you know, the spot where he's close enough that I'll jump to him, but safe enough that I won't land on him. And he's treading water and I climb up and, and at that moment, right, I'm comfortable jumping. And I'm comfortable jumping, not because the board seems any closer to the water. It still felt like I was way up there. The situation is unchanged except for one factor. Someone I trust is there with me saying, I will take care of you. And the reason that's believable is for my seven years of life leading up to that, Dad had always been trustworthy. So I could lean on our experience that Dad does take care of me. That does do what he says he'll do. And so I can jump to him. And so the scriptures say, don't get away from these past promises. They remind you of what God has done for you, of how your father has carried you, how he's been there for you, how his promises have been sure, how you can trust him so you can walk with him today. The scriptures will tell us over and over again to look backwards, not for the sake of nostalgia, but for the sake of being able to walk with him today in faithfulness. Where else will we get that message if not from the Word of God? The second thing the Scriptures do so vividly for us is they paint a picture of what is to come when Jesus returns. And that hope motivates us and strengthens us in the midst of hardship. And so the Scriptures constantly call us in the midst of whatever trial we're facing to look backward at God's faithfulness and to look forward at God's promise. And when we do that, all of a sudden the situation that we're in seems survivable. So much so that the passage that that Carl preached last week, the verses immediately preceding this, says in the midst of these trials we can walk with a joy that's inexpressible. A joy that's so rich and so full we can't describe or express it. Even in the midst of affliction and suffering. Notice that God revealed His Word to the prophets and delivered it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and faithful men and women to serve us. And if I could leave you with anything this morning, it's that when you go to the Scriptures, you're not going to a rule book intended to rob you of joy, to place undue restrictions on you. This is, don't do this. I know that's fun and I know that makes you happy, but don't do it because God doesn't want you to be too happy. Rather, the Scriptures lay out for us in God's wisdom how the world works and operates and what will lead us into true, lasting, sustainable joy. 
Sometimes we have to just trust him because it doesn't seem that that's the way life is. Sometimes the commands of Scripture are so counterintuitive to us, it doesn't make sense. But that's where the Scripture says, okay, let's step back and say, who is God? And Romans 5 says that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That if we ever had any doubt of his kind affection towards us, we look to the cross. And we see what Jesus did. And let me say this is that when we endure this hardship, we do it walking with a God who knows what it's like to suffer. Because He's a God who suffers with His people. Because He's a God who knows what it's like to lose a son. And He says, I will be there for you. And I have done all that I can to prove my love and kind intention towards you. So stick to my word. Because it proclaims truth that you need to endure. Truth that you need to experience this inexpressible joy. Because there's no hope outside of Jesus. If you're not a Christian today, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that where you sit right now. It's really simple. In Ephesians 1, the scripture says that, that we became saved, that we were sealed by God for salvation when we heard the good news and believed. No special ceremony. Simply that we heard the good news that God's only Son died to pay the full price for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And that that was enough. And when you heard that and believed, trusted it, you became the child of God. All of your sins were wiped away. And the Spirit of God has come into your life to strengthen you, to walk through whatever this world throws at you. I would implore you to place your trust in Him today. I would plead with you to do that. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, you've been walking with Him for years, I want to remind you of His goodness in the midst of whatever you endure and encourage you to stay close to His promises and His word. Let's pray and then we'll worship in response to this wonderful God who doesn't walk away from His people. Father God, we praise You for Your faithfulness to us, for the gift of Your word that shows us how to walk rightly with you as you give us the fullness of joy. You say an inexpressible joy. Father, I pray that today your spirit would work within us to, to draw us back to your word, to renew a passion to be near you and to walk with you. I pray that our time in First and Second Peter would, would be that for many of us. As we dig into smaller group Bible studies going through these same texts and reading them on our, during our work week, that we would just be reminded of your faithfulness. Reminded of the hope that we have. I pray that you would enable all of us to look backwards at your faithfulness and forward to your promise so that today we can walk with you in joy. Lord, I lift up those with us who've not trusted you. I pray that your spirit would soften their heart. And just like you revealed your truth to the prophets, I pray that you'd open their eyes and reveal it to them today. That they would see that the sinless Son of God died for them and rose again to cleanse them of all sin, to welcome them into your family, and that there would be great joy and rejoicing in heaven today as men and women trust in you. It's in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen.